0: So I know that things are dark right now, and I know that all over the world, there's a level of pain and uncertainty setting in for the long haul because this crisis just seems to be rolling on and on and over and over and over again with the news stories and with how it is impacting each one of us individually. I just want to remind you at the very beginning of this sermon that the power of our God is disproportionately higher than the power of this world and the powers of darkness. You know, when light and darkness collide, there is no competition there. The light exposes and invades darkness without asking for permission. And I love that Matt went into that song, Sovereign Over Us, because it's the reminder that not only does God allow for certain things to happen in our world, even in the midst of pain and even in the midst of suffering, there is not one moment that you and I take a breath and our Heavenly Father loses control for an instant. So I know things are chaotic. I know things are all over the place right now, but I just want to remind you that the power of our God is greater, and the power of our God is greater in our own lives, I know if you're anything like me, there's a lot of days right now where you feel distant from God. There's a lot of days where you feel a little bit unproductive and like you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. But I just want to remind you that one moment, one encounter with Jesus can supernaturally shift everything about your day and your life. That's not like spiritual hype. That's not like me saying something that I hope pumps you up for the beginning of this sermon. That's legitimate biblical truth. Every time Jesus speaks into a situation, everything changes. And so if you're having a bad day today, if you're having a bad week, maybe you feel like you're just having a terrible year, just know one moment where the Son of God invades your life can change everything. And that's not just for non-believers or someone who we want to come to faith in Jesus. That's for those of us who have been following Jesus for longer than we can remember. You still need a fresh revelation of who Jesus is, and I believe His mercies are still new every single morning. And so, don't wait until tomorrow morning to taste the mercy of Jesus. In this moment, right now, I believe we're going to encounter the supernatural power of God because the Holy Spirit moves where the truth of God is spoken, and we're going to look to the Word of God together. Before we continue in looking at the New Testament letter to the church at Colossae, I want to go ahead and give you the title for this sermon. The title. for this sermon is this holy and dearly loved can you just look at somebody next to you in the room that you're in right now and say you are holy and dearly loved go ahead and make it awkward because it's awkward to say you are holy and dearly loved in the sight of God here's what I want you to know as you see those words accepting and believing That that statement is true about you is the key to walking in the new life Jesus died for you to live. So Easter Sunday was not as much an ending as it was a new beginning. And we get permission to step into this new life because Jesus conquered the grave and the Holy Spirit comes and lives on the inside of us. But you need to know the key to walking in that new life that's been purchased for you is actually believing that right here, right now, if you are in Christ, God sees you as holy and God sees you as dearly loved. And that's hard to believe, especially when you consider how many ways and thoughts and actions you and I take that run contrary to it. But what I want to show you in the word of God that rooting yourself in that kind of identity leads to the activity that you and I call the Christian life. If you have your Bible right where you're at, just hold it up. Hold it up. Bible drills getting really old doing it online. I know I'm going to still do it just so we have some kind of consistency. But I can't wait until we're in the same room raising up Bibles to heaven and with all hope that the God of the universe just might carry you into a new relationship, single people. If you want to turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. Toward the end of your Bible, a letter that we've been looking toward, and we're actually about halfway through. We're going to hit a ton of verses during our time today. But it's really fitting that last week we took a break for Easter Sunday, and we talked about our foundation being resurrection. Because this is really a good point to transition in the letter, Colossians, into the practical side of why Paul has written everything he has written about the supremacy of Jesus. Paul goes off in this letter about how Jesus is greater, about how Jesus wins, and about how giving our lives for his glory is the ultimate act of satisfaction for our souls and the reason why we exist. It's amazing. But when you get to verse 16 of chapter 2, That's where we transition into okay, what am I supposed to do with all of this information about Jesus? So if you have your Bible in front of you, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, if you're there, say, I'm there. Come on, let's read these verses together. It says this Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Some of y'all need to say amen to that In shelter in place. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, worked on that word all week, grows as God causes it to grow. Paul says, Therefore, In light of everything I've told you about the cross, in light of everything I've told you about Jesus, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Now that's an interesting command because it sounds like Paul is commanding us to control something that we can't control. Don't let anyone judge you. Well, I can't control whether or not somebody else is gonna place judgment on my behavior, but here's what I can control. I can control whether or not I let their evaluation of me control my view of myself. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't let somebody else's view of you control the narrative on what you believe to be true about yourself. And he talks about two things. He talks about your diet, and he talks about special days. These are things that are rooted in the Old Testament law as ways to go about pursuing a relationship with God. Nothing wrong with any of these things, but here's what was happening 2,000 years ago. There was a ton of confusion about how many of these things continued to need to be the focus of pursuing God and how many of these things just needed to fall into line with letting Jesus complete it on our behalf. Here's what Paul says. He says, The diet of the Old Testament and the days of the Old Testament are good, but they're a shadow of what was to come, Jesus. What Paul is saying is, If you try to follow Jesus and have a relationship with God that's rooted in rules and restrictions and religion, it's like having a relationship with a human being and talking to their shadow instead of their body. That's what he says. He says, these things are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul is saying, we don't relate to God on the basis of how good we conform to the law or how many rules and restrictions we are able to keep. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. What in the world does that mean? This is one of those sections of scripture that you actually have to have an attention span to read it again and again to know what God is saying. But when you read, it's, and actually understand it. It's so profound. Paul's actually saying that the worship of angels is not something to be arrived at by disciplining yourself to obey God enough. So he's not talking about worshiping angels. What was taught 2,000 years ago is that angels had a special ability to worship God because they're more holy than we are. And so if you actually go without a certain amount of things and you obey a certain amount of rules and restrictions, you can worship as the angels worship. Paul is saying that is not true. You have access through Jesus and you don't need to let that false humility look like real worship. They've lost connection with the head who is Jesus. Look at verse 20. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul is saying a rule and religious-based pursuit of God has no value to get you what you are looking for. Why? Religion died in the death of Jesus. Did you know that? That what was buried with Christ was not simply our sins, it was also all of our efforts to be good enough for God. And Paul says, you died with Christ to how the world goes about this, so why do you relate to God through things like, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch? Those were real things being taught by false teachers 2,000 years ago. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not what we do. We don't do self-imposed worship. Why? Why? Because even our best efforts to discipline ourselves enough to please God aren't enough to restrain the sinful nature that lives on the inside of us. Paul's going, on your best day, with the most amount of effort that you have, it falls short of the worship of a holy God. But he's not done yet. And i got to be honest, this is my favorite passage in all of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, particularly the beginning, is one that has been a lifeline for me since I was a teenager. Look at this. Colossians 3 verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Are you kidding me? Paul says, you died with Christ. Don't worship through religion. And then he says, since then you have been raised with Christ past tense. That means when Jesus rose from the dead, so did you. And so your pursuit of God, here's what he's doing. He's switching the way we approach God. And he's switching it from something that's in the future that we need to strive to attain to something that was purchased in the past that's ours here and now. And he says, since you have been raised with Christ, here's what I want you to do. Set your hearts and your minds on heaven and grab access to what is already yours in Christ. The Christian pathway of worship is not one where we try to do enough to please God. Christian worship looks like agreeing with God that Jesus did it all. Oh, come on, this is good news, and you can amen that from your living room. It means you no longer have to try to do enough to make your heavenly Father be pleased with you in this moment. He was pleased forevermore in the work of Jesus, and when you're united to Jesus, that's how God sees you totally flipping the way you and I are tempted to go about this and totally changing what it means to be a Christian. He says, you are hidden with Christ in God. That's who you are right now as a Christian, as a believer. I've heard it said that worship is giving God his breath back. I think that's good. That's brilliant. That's poetic. I'm a lot more of of, of just like a black and white type person. So I wrote this down and you might want to write this down. I wrote down, worship is willfully choosing to agree with God. What does it mean to worship God? It means saying yes to what he says is already done on your behalf. It means saying yes to what he has spoken out as the reason for the universe and the reason for your life. When you lift your voice in praise to God, you're not inventing something that pleases God. You're agreeing to something that God initiated on your behalf in the first place. And so I just want to invite you today, if you feel far from God, could you just take two seconds to maybe think about agreeing with the fact that God is not far from you? You might be listening to me right now and be like, I don't even believe in God, so I don't know what to do with all these deep truths from Colossians and these teachings about what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. Okay, you don't believe in God? Here's what I believe. And here's what the Bible teaches. God believes in you. And God has accomplished in Jesus everything that needs to be accomplished to draw us near despite our sins. And our identity is rooted in him, past tense. It's not rule-based. It's not religion-based. It's a relationship. Now, that's usually where everybody who's not interested in obeying God claps and goes crazy. Because they're like, thank God, that's all I really tend to keep doing is disobeying God and I love when people talk about how it's not about the rules it's not about religion it's not about the law it's just about the fact that Jesus completed it for me and I get to delight in that and I I don't want to kind of rain on your parade right now but I want to tell you what Paul is doing in this moment is not lowering the requirement of what it means to worship God he's actually raising it to a whole nother level Because he's saying, your pursuit of God is not rooted in religion. Your pursuit of God is rooted in resurrection. So now it's not only that you're going to try to obey a bunch of rules. It's that you've been raised from the dead to live a new life. And a new life looks like a brand new reality, including all of your behaviors. And Paul's going to name a few. Look at verse 5. I know we're talking about a lot of verses today, but I feel like we need the word of God on our minds and hearts more than ever. Look at Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul says, put to death, if you've died with Christ, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Here we go, verse 12, I've been waiting this whole time to tell you why I named the sermon what I did. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Amazing. What Paul is pointing out is that when you've been raised from the dead, Everything about your old self has been done away with in the grave and everything about who you are, Christ in you, the hope of glory is alive to be lived out right here and right now. The problem is it's a process. And Paul says, as you're putting to death the old you and the new you is coming alive, here's what the process looks like. You're being renewed in knowledge of your creator. This is called the renewing of the mind. The reason why the Christian life can be so frustrating is because it teaches that there's a part of you that's dead and a new part of you, the real you, who's coming alive. But the dead you has a tendency to try to fool you into thinking that he or she is still alive. And the alive you has a tendency of being really hard to activate. That's called renewing the mind. And Paul's method of that new you coming alive is not will do this and this and this and every morning read these verses and go about these disciplines and then the old you will stay in the grave and the new you will come alive. No, no, no. His method is agreeing with God by faith that this has already happened. Did you know the key to walking in full confidence as a believer in Jesus is believing in your heart and embracing over time that God has once and for all called you holy and dearly loved because of the blood of Jesus. It's an acceptance of what's already yours. And the more you accept it, the more you embrace it, and the more you celebrate it, the more you go back into your life with a supernatural ability to obey God like never before. Behavior flows from identity. Activity in the Christian life is never supposed to be something that we just conjure up enough to please God. Why? Because that's a transaction. Relationship is family. And I'm here to tell you today, Jesus did not come to grow a following. Jesus came to grow a family. And what it means to be in the family of God, why was Jesus the son of God? Because Jesus came to unite us with our heavenly father who is our creator and maker. So you were created from a heavenly father who has labeled you forever holy and dearly loved. And it is only when you allow this label to become the center of your identity, no longer up for grabs on the basis of your behavior, no longer up and down on the basis of how things go in your life or what circumstances might come up. No, 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 no. This is the center of who I am regardless. I'm telling you, everything changes. And church, I'm telling you that I believe a new level of experiencing Jesus is on the other side of holding on to promises that have always been yours in Christ. I'm concerned about our church. I love ACC. And as your pastor, I do a lot of thinking about what we're doing well and what does God want to speak into during these moments. You ever read the letters that were written to the churches in Revelation? And it's like, you're doing this well and you really need to work on this. And some of them are like, you're doing nothing well and you need to work on everything. I think there's a lot that we as a church are doing really well and a lot that needs to be celebrated. I am amazed by our community. I'm amazed by our love for one another. I'm amazed by our generosity. I'm amazed by your commitment. I'm amazed that in a season where we had to go fully online as a church, you guys rolled with this as if you were expecting it. It was like, okay, yeah, for a little while we're going to be online. I mean, I feel like we haven't missed a beat, and the church is rolling on, and God is doing so much through this time. I absolutely love that. But a severe weak spot that I think we all would agree upon as a church that exists, and it exists in my heart, is I think we have this dangerous tendency of celebrating surface-level pick-me-ups, particularly from social media, and not diving into the depths of gold that are the truths of Scripture. I don't want this to be negative toward online preaching because that's literally what I am doing right now. I love that we have so many resources available online. I love reading Christian books. I love sermons and I love worship songs. But I think our church has a dangerous tendency of trading in what we could be holding on from holding on to from the word of God for just settling for a sermon clip here or there. Oh, this really inspired me. This was awesome. Oh, this was a really cool moment that I had where I really felt like God was really close to me. And the problem with all these surface level, super inspirational moments is that they're here one moment and gone the next like the wind. What the word of God does when it sinks into your soul is it roots you into your identity in Christ. Here's why I say that. I think... Many of us could easily name the last five sermons that inspired us. But if asked point blank, tell me five Bible verses about your, your identity in Christ, you would cower and you would falter. I think we could easily go, oh, these were the big moments that I had where God felt close. But if we were asked, tell me in the Bible, what does God see when God sees you? Most of us would go, oh, I need to think about that, Uh, the the Gospels. I need to think about the New Testament writers. And isn't Romans 8 really powerful? And isn't there something in there? Instead of what should be cemented into our our identity totally and completely, which is, I am more than a conqueror in Christ. The blood of Jesus has purchased my life from the realm of darkness and the dominion of heaven. I am no longer a sinner. I'm actually a saint. I am new in the eyes of God. I'm pure in the eyes of God. I'm blameless in the eyes of God. I've been welcomed into a royal priesthood, a new family, given a new name. These are not hype things that we name to make us feel better in a moment. These are the truths of the Bible that cement our identity. And when you know who you are, you now have the power to live out the Christian life as a confident, obedient child of God. Because you're not walking into your day questioning whether or not that's who you are. You're holy and dearly loved. I'm putting off the old and I'm putting on the new. This is not a practice. This is agreeing with God. I am who you say I am. Even if my behavior and my thoughts and my affections feel different, I'm going to learn to supernaturally found my identity and what you say about me. You start doing that and you start allowing the Bible to replace a lot of the inspiration that you look to elsewhere. I'm telling you, the word of God is living and active. And if it gets through to your mind and your heart, everything changes. What was Paul's command? Set your minds on things above. Set your hearts on things above. How do I do that? You're being renewed in knowledge to this. And in an age where our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter, and in a time where I think a lot of us are just looking for the next thing to numb the pain of the uncertainty of these moments, I just want to invite us, what if... The shelter in place of COVID-19 was an invitation for some of us from God to figure out who we are from the Bible. Not in school, not at work, not in all of these things that we could look to for the rest of our lives. But what if we learned from the very words of Scripture, hey, this is what God says about you. And the sooner you hold on to it and know about it and agree with it and celebrate it, the sooner your life is going to look obedient and holy and dearly loved. So i got two points, and I'm going to preach this as simply as I possibly can because I believe that holding on to the promises of Scripture over time can truly change your life. And so here's my goal. I'm going to actually give you two quotes that I want you to learn how to embrace in your time with God. And I want to challenge you during this time of quarantine, during this time of sheltering at home. When you get alone with the Lord, I don't want you to leave that space until these two realities have become cemented into your soul. Here's number one. And it's going to shock you. I want you to get to the place where you can say with your mouth, believe in your heart and know in your mind, I agree that I am holy. I agree that I am holy. Now, holy is a word that we need to clarify. Because when the Bible talks about the holiness of Jesus and the angels crying out, holy, 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 they are crying out that Jesus is without error and without equal. He has no rival, he has no one who competes with him, but he actually also has nothing wrong with him at the same time, he's worthy of all praise. We're not saying that we're holy in the sense that Jesus is holy. But what does the word holy mean for the life of a Christian? Well, for most of us, we only see this word on the front of our Bibles, maybe the sides of our Bibles, or in the context where it's followed up by a cuss word. And so we really need to just reinforce the idea that what does it mean for something to be holy in the sight of God? And why does Paul say, even though I'm I'm chosen by God, why does he label me holy and dearly loved? Here it is. You ready? What it means to be holy in the sight of God is set apart, pure and blameless, sacred. It means that what Jesus did on your behalf made you new and sinless in the sight of God, but on top of that, it gave you a new level of responsibility because someone who has an identity called holy if they believe that and then they leave that space where they believe that and they go back to living an unholy life, you know what that feels like? Hypocrisy. And you know what that does to your soul? It violates your conscience. And it's why so many of us have a roller coaster ride of a relationship with Jesus because over and over and over again, we hear our heavenly father tell us that we're holy and dearly loved. And we know that we should be living differently based on what the Bible says, but we don't find our behavior following that proclamation. And so we feel like a hypocrite and we ride the wave and we wonder, is this ever going to change? Let me tell you when it's going to change. When you embrace and celebrate for yourself that God has set you apart for something special, and something unique, you allow your behavior to follow what you have believed to be true about you. So now, if I go back to my old way of life when I've been bought by the blood of Jesus and I've been called holy, you want to know what that's going to make me? Miserable. See, sin is fun for a second, and has some rewards that it brings in a moment. But here's the bad thing and the amazing thing about the spirit of God. When you have the spirit of God on the inside of you and you continue to persist in sin, it just makes you miserable because Romans chapter eight tells us that the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. What does that mean? That means when you walk in your old ways, but you've been supernaturally transformed by Jesus, you feel this voice on the inside of you going, hey, that's not who you are. Hey, that's not who you are. Hey, that's not who you are. And some of you, that voice, has been speaking for years and you just want it to stop. I'm here to tell you, your heavenly father loves you so much that that voice is never going to go away. You're never going to wake up the morning after and feel good. You're never going to believe that life is found outside of Jesus because you've been purchased by the blood, you've been adopted, you've been sealed. He'll drive you crazy for the rest of your life until he gets you to believe from the inside out that you are who God says you are. You have been made holy. And if you continue to live an unholy life, that doesn't mean That you don't believe in Jesus. You wanna know what that means? That means your life is miserable. Well, Paul says if, if we've died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? If you died with Jesus and you've been called set apart, but your life looks like the lives that are being lived by the rest of the world, you're not getting away with anything. You're just living your life compiling shame upon shame upon shame. And your heavenly father is not meeting with you in this moment to go, hey, you really need to change. I believe your heavenly father is leaning back, reclining in front of you going, aren't you tired of this? Aren't you tired of looking for life in all these dead places? Aren't you tired of waking up and hating what last night was like? And don't you want to believe that I have more for you? When you put on the identity of I've been made holy, you accept that you've been set apart for special use in the kingdom of God. So I can remember stepping up in my faith and starting to believe some truths to be true about myself and about what Jesus has done on my behalf. But then I was going back into like old environments where sin was rampant all around me. And I could just feel this tug on the inside of me calling me to obedience and calling me to go, hey, you don't belong here. If you're still hearing that voice from within you telling you you don't belong in these spaces, that same voice is the empowerment that you have been given to walk in obedience. But it doesn't begin with more effort to do what the Bible says. It begins with believing it's already who you are. Like what if Jesus didn't want you to leave this space and try harder to obey him? What if Paul is teaching that that's the exact wrong way to go about the Christian life? And he's literally saying, hey, even if your behavior doesn't confirm any of this, and even if your feelings don't verify what is being said, that doesn't make it less true. That means you need to trust it. And what if faith is waking up in the morning, looking in the mirror and going, I'm still the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm called holy in his sight. And the more I hold on to that being true, the more it becomes true in the overflow of my actions. Still true on your worst day. Still true when you have six good days and go back on the seventh. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is progressively renewing you into the image of your creator. I got good news for you. God's not finished with you. He's not finished with me. He's a good father. He doesn't ever give up on his children. I love that. Uh, As God's chosen and dearly loved. That word chosen in the ESV is the word elect. And that might make you nervous. Because some of you are like, oh no, is he going to talk about election? Is he going to talk about predestination? I didn't think we were going there for online church without the opportunity for a Q&A. Like, we, need to, we, need, we need to figure this out. Listen, all you need to know about God's choice is that if you are in Christ, God has initiated a relationship with you before you ever said yes to him. And if it is God who initiated it, It's also going to be God who finishes it. He's faithful to finish what he starts. If he calls you holy today, you will be presented in glory, holy in his sight. And there is nothing, there is nothing you can do about it. This is resurrection life. If you've died and risen again, it's over. So stop waiting for your behavior to tell you whether or not what God proclaimed about you is true. And start believing that what God proclaimed about you is true. And so my behavior is going to follow. And even if it's been 10 years and my behavior hasn't followed, it's not over yet. You're still breathing. And God's got more for you. You're holy in the sight of God. So I want you to be in the presence of God. And some of that looks like reading the scriptures. Some of that looks like reciting the scriptures. Some of that looks like praying the Psalms. Some of that looks like just sitting in silence and repeating this again. God, I agree that I am holy As unholy as I might feel, I agree that I am holy. That's number one. And that was a long point number one. And I can't promise that point number two is going to be shorter. Is this starting to feel normal, like us being together again? Because I'm starting to feel like we're back on our stage and we're back at 323 Airport Road. And we're just going to go for it. i got one more point. You guys ready for this? I agree that I am holy. Number two, I embrace that I am dearly loved. I embrace that I am dearly loved. The main reason why believers in Jesus persist in sin is that they are living from an internal emptiness when fullness is available on the other side of believing that they have a heavenly father who calls them dearly loved. If you know your identity is sealed by a father who calls you his own, But you leave and go into your day every day looking for love and looking for validation and looking for freedom and forgiveness in all of these other spaces. You're gonna be confused on the back end of wondering, why do I keep doing what I don't wanna do? Why do I keep looking where I don't wanna look? It's because you were created to be loved by a father. That phrase dearly loved in the Greek, this is so cool. It means to love, to wish well, to take pleasure in, to long for this denotes the love of reason to esteem did you know that God doesn't love you in the generic way a lot of us love our family members of course I love them, they're in my family I have to, some of y'all are really feeling that right now shelter in place, you're like I guess I love you guys we say that we're dearly loved by our heavenly father we're saying that God longs to be close to you he's the most perfect version of a father that you've ever been around and it's not even that God mandates things of you it's that God takes pleasure in closeness to you do you want to know why God sent Jesus to save you Because in the glorifying of the name of Jesus is what's called the pleasure of God. It's where you and I find the enjoyment of our souls. And when you discover this one, this this just rocks your world. God enjoys you enjoying him. God enjoys it when you leave spending time with him. And you don't hate yourself anymore. God enjoys it when you reframe your picture of him from the one you assumed because of a lie to the truth that you're still loved. God takes pleasure in that. It's what he loves to do. And so I agree that I'm holy and that I need to live a new life. I can't stay the same, but not because I need to be holy, but because I am holy. Jesus has made me pure and spotless. That's an awesome truth, but You know what's even more incredible is if you stack on top of that, I embrace that I am dearly loved by a perfect heavenly father. You wanna know how I go about this one? And I'm literally giving you something that I do in my own times with the Lord. I'm not saying this is exactly what you need to do, but some of you, this is gonna help you. When I get alone with God, especially when I've been having a bad week, I'm immediately tempted to go through the Rolodex of everything I've done since the last time I prayed or the last time I had a moment in the scriptures. But instead of doing that, embracing that you're dearly loved means reframing what you believe to be true about God to what is true about your perfect heavenly father. So here's what I do. I think about the best version of a father that I've seen on planet earth, or the best version of a family. For some of you, this is really easy because you're like, my family's amazing. I'll just think about my dad. I'll just think about our family dynamic. But for maybe the other 90% of us, it's not that easy. But it's not hard to think of one example that you have in your life of what does a good father look like? And what does a healthy, encouraging family look like? And what is it like to be around that? Courtney and I are so drawn to the families in our church because just being around families that exist like this, it it leaves you feeling loved. I can't tell you how many times on a Sunday I go home and I, I feel like I just got love all over me. I can't tell you how many families in our church, a few in particular that I'm thinking about right now where I'm at their house and I'm driving home with a completely different spirit than I walked in the room because it's clear that that's what the love of God is like. You know people who are like that people who leave you as a better version of who you are than when you showed up. I think about those moments and I go, God is like that times a billion. And so he doesn't want me to leave his presence until I'm reminded again of who I am in him. There's one man I think about in particular just because it was such a pivotal moment in my story when Courtney and I decided to move to Auburn and start Auburn Community Church, I was so scared and so like wanting any sort of validation from someone who's wiser than me. And so I would sit across the table from mentors and from friends and tell them, "Hey, like I'm really way too young to be doing this, but we're going to start a church, I and mean, it doesn't have any money attached to it, and we're not a part of a denomination, and this is weird." And almost every conversation I had about starting ACC, I left discouraged. And not full of faith. But then I sat across the table from my seminary professor. And this is a man who I probably expected to immediately tell me 15 reasons why this was a terrible idea. He has a PhD in chemistry, he has a doctor of ministry, and he reads the original Bible. Like he doesn't read ESV, he reads Hebrew and Greek. And so being around him immediately makes you intimidated and be like, I don't know anything about God. And whatever you say is good. And I was sitting with him at Chick-fil-A, obviously, because that's where God is. And so I I looked at him and said, hey, uh, my wife and I are feeling like the call of God to go start this church in Auburn. And I know it sounds crazy, and I know it's probably not the wisest thing in the world, but I can't help but think that this is God. And I'll never forget his posture. He leaned back, smiled, and looked me in the eyes and said, I think you can do everything you agree that God has set in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm with you. I think you should do it, and I want to help. He had nothing to write on. He got a napkin out, and with a pen, just asked me some hard questions and said, I just want you to know I'm for you. And I think you have what it takes. ACC, being around God is like that. And I'm not saying that God's always going to tell you everything that you want to hear or he's always just going to compliment you and validate you and coddle you. But I am saying God's 10 billion times the father, the best father you can think of is. When he's with you, the main thing he wants to get across is confidence. The main thing he wants to do is tell you, hey, you're not the product of your behavior. Hey, listen, I'm not thinking about everything you did wrong lately. I don't want to rub your face in the shame of where you've been. I want to lift you up to a higher existence. Some of you are really uncomfortable right now because you're like, this sounds like prosperity, feel-good preaching. It's not prosperity preaching. This is identity preaching. Because if God sees Jesus when he sees you, he knows no other way to interact with you than to believe in you, than to love you, than to cover you with the truth. You're my holy one. You're my dearly loved child. And you let that get through to your soul, you start living an obedient life, not because you want to try to obey the rules, but because what could be better than being in the Father's house. We need more Luke 15 moments with God. We need more moments where we're reminded that a son who ran away came home to an immediate party. Not not a party after he agreed to new behavior. This is what's crazy about the prodigal son is the father wasn't waiting outside going, if you agree to never leave home again and never go back to your old life and never do this and never do that, then we'll talk about welcoming you home. Before the son can finish his apology and his offer to be a slave, the father goes, we got to throw a party now. We got to welcome him home just because he's here. It's enough that you're there if you get into the presence of God. And when you show up, don't let every ounce of baggage that you're carrying into that moment be what defines it. Let the blood of Jesus stand in your place. This is all because of Jesus. And so my encouragement to our church is to spend time in the word of God, but not to memorize more verses or to check it off a list of things we did today, to seal our identity. If we're gonna become the mature church that God has called us to be, We have to stop living in these surface level truths and these little moments of inspiration and get deep in the promises of God and go, I am who my father says I am. Holiness is gonna flow. The love of God is gonna flow. And I believe this is what the world so desperately needs. Would you do me a favor? Would you just bow your head? Would you just close your eyes if you're listening to this right now? I want you to have a moment with your father. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture in your mind the best version of a father that you have had. Maybe it's someone you interacted with when you were little. Maybe it's even from a movie or a made up character in your mind. But for some of you, it's the person in the room with you right now and it's making you emotional to think about it. And I want you to have that sweet moment. I want you to think about the best version of a father that you've ever come to know. And now in your mind, I want you to think about the God that we are about to pray to. And I want you to reframe him. Think about that father on his best day and multiply it as many times as you can. And boom, there has never been a moment where you have bowed your head in prayer to God where he hasn't been like that. Father, I pray that a true picture of who you are would be revealed to your people in these moments. I pray in the name of Jesus that frustrated Christians who have been keeping their identity up for grabs every day, letting their behavior define them, letting culture and social media define them, letting circumstances define them. I pray that no longer would they let it go up for grabs. Would they root their identity in the resurrection of Jesus? You've given us new life and that new life means we're holy and dearly loved. So God, I pray in the name of Jesus for a church to rise up that believes we are who you say we are. Yes, we wanna live holy lives, but we can't do it in our effort. It has to be your spirit within us and it has to begin with us believing that we've already been made holy in your sight. So help your people agree. In fact, if you're praying right now, I just want you to pray out loud to God, right where you are, I want you to pray. I agree, God, I agree with you. It's so powerful, it's worship. And God, more than anything, I pray that you as a loving heavenly father would begin to replace the lies that have taken root for so many people for so long. Cover your church in your love. We are holy and dearly loved, so let our lives overflow with gentleness and compassion and humility because we've been with you. We just wanna be close to you. Remind us who we are. And more than that, remind us who you are. We love you so much. And we sing to you right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, let's sing together.